I'm Joel Diffenderfer. I'm K. Edward Coker. I'm Vickers. And this is FGCon 2023, <laughs> the last session, uh, the conference for being rooted in the gospel. We're just going to close with some uh, questions for these two fine gentlemen here. Um, we're going to start with um, maybe an example that we haven't heard yet. Um, Dr. Vickers, in his uh, breakout session, talked about discipleship is, um, or, or discipling as something you, if you're doing it well, you're not doing it from behind, like this pushing, shoving someone down the path, but you come alongside someone and gently guide them. So as you gentlemen reflect back on your life, who is someone that none of us would know <laughs> who did that well for you? And we can start with Dr. Vickers. Okay, well, there's lots, there's lots of people I could mention, uh, but I'm going to mention um, actually a, uh, a professor of mine that I met at, at, when I was at grad school at Wheaton, um, who actually, I was there at grad school, but he was in the college, and I needed to brush up my Greek skills, as whatever they were at the time. And so somebody suggested, well, why don't you go take, you know, just sit in uh, on these classes up at this, up just means up the hill, at the college. And I was like, well, I mean, undergrads? And, and so, you know, it gives you some idea. And I went up there and I met, so from day one, I met Scott that day. From day one, I was challenged by him. Uh, and I spent every minute I could from that day for the next, like, two years straight where he would meet with me. I wasn't the most talented student. I wasn't, the, I wasn't even one of his college students. I was a grad student who's like sort of migrated up there, right? Uh, and here's the, here's the thing I wanna talk about. When I first took a class from him uh, for credit, it was a class on the exegesis of John, and I was borderline. I don't mean borderline like Students today, it's like they're borderline like A, B. They're like, I'm getting ready to fail. Like, well, B's a pretty good grade. I was sincerely borderline. And I came to Scott because I came up with a solution. What I'm going to do is I'm going to switch from Bible to theology so I may not have to worry about Greek, right, which I love to tell my systematic theology uh, colleagues all the time. You know, my second choice was to go systematic theology so I'd not read the Bible, I'd just read books. And so, um, <laughs> some of you are mad, right? And you don't even teach systematic theology. Imagine how mad Bruce Ware gets if I say that. And so, um, I went to Scott and, and, and Dr. Hayden at the time. I was like, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. And Scott said, yeah, you could do that. And that would, you know, that would work. He said, but here's, what you, here's a question to ask yourself. What difference will that decision make down the road? And he said, are you more worried, are you more concerned about getting a bad grade, possibly the worst grade, or are you more concerned to learn to read the Word? You have this opportunity to learn to read, read the Word of God in, the, in its original language. Which one of those means more to you? He said, you know, your ego or this opportunity. And uh, I just will say, that is one of, the, one of the moments I can point to that in that little moment where he both got sort of beside me, but also, right, he just laid it on the line. I'm not kidding. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. That little conversation, which took maybe five minutes, 
that was the conversation, honestly, that led to me sitting here today. Because hmm. if I hadn't done that, if I had gone, my other, gone the other way, which had been a you know, legit thing to do, if I had gone the other way, I'm not kidding, virtually every step along the way, none of those steps would have happened hmm. if I had pulled out of that particular class, uh, because I certainly would never have ended up as a New Testament prophet southern, just from that one little moment. And that was the impact he had. So he was both leading me, but also kind of calling me out. Hmm. And then he spent the next, that, that was like a half a semester in, half a year in. He spent the next year and a half meeting with me at least once a week at the coffee shop there at Wheaton just to guide me and mentor me. And again, I wasn't the, you know, I wasn't the, uh, the sharpest student there, but he took from his time every single week and met with me and you know, the more I reflect on it, it might not seem very dramatic to you guys, but every time I think about it, like, virtually nothing that happened to me since would have happened in God's providence apart from that little conversation and then the time he took with me over the next year and a half. Wow. So I, I too, have several people that I could point to, but I'll just speak to the one that comes to mind right now. Uh, Reverend Hezekiah Brady was a pastor in the Reformed Church in Pembroke, Illinois, which at the time he pastored was the poorest community in the United States. Um, he was the only African-American in that, what is it called, classes or that, um, that denomination. He was probably about my age now when I met him. He and his wife had been married at that time a good 35 years or so and he was still, he was still very fresh. He was disciplined in his Bible study. He and his wife loved each other, and they obviously had a beautiful relationship. So I said, okay, whatever this guy got, I want it. So I started stalking him and hounding him and, you know, eventually somehow or another got them to adopt me and the family so his he his wife would come over to our house my wife and I at the time had been married about four or five years his wife would come over every Thursday and sit with my wife and just disciple her and Pastor Brady would come to my office or I would go to his office and we would just sit and talk um, he, we, I came out of, in college, I came out of the Navigators, and that was sort of a very regimented sort of discipleship model. He would just, they would just come to the house, you know, and sit with us and talk to us. We would go places with them, and he left an indelible mark on me just as a Christian man and as a Christian husband and then as a Christian pastor because he pastored in a very hard place, um, and he did it well. He was very serious about his uh, expository preaching ministry. He, would, he wrote a whole lot of books because he would turn his sermons into books. I, did, I missed that part. Uh, he would, I'm sure he would be, I won't say disappointed, but he would probably be challenging me now, given the fact that he wrote so many books. Okay, well, what are you doing? So as it relates to just godliness, 
and what it looks like, he epitomized that for me and just sort of modeled it. Uh, so, Dr. Uh, Copeland, you said we're not the pilot, but many of us lead in some sense, right? Whether it's pastors or small groups or husbands or fathers. So, how do we lead well when we're not the pilot? You can't lead well if you don't follow well. And by following well, what I mean by that is, let's just take let's take marriage first and then we'll take ministry. So when I was young in marriage, before Pastor Brady started discipling us, I used to get mad at God because I would say, okay, I'm trying to be a godly husband, but you didn't give me any models. Jesus wasn't married. He didn't, there's no place in the Bible where it says Jesus came home and his wife said, why didn't you take out the trash? And he said, oh, thou woman. I mean, you, <laughs> it's nothing in here, and I, I went on that track for a minute until it struck me, and he told me, he spoke to me as clearly as I'm speaking to you through the word, it wasn't an audible voice, but as I was reading scripture, well, wait a minute, you're the bride of Christ. Jesus does have a bride. What kind of wife, what kind of spouse are you? That changed my whole paradigm as it relates to how I lead my wife and my children because I'm a child of God and I'm part of the bride of Christ. So to answer the question, since we're in leadership positions as men, as husbands, as pastors, uh, as whatever, how do we, I forgot how this question was phrased, how do we lead and at the same time recognize we're not the pilot? Every, I don't care what kind of leader you are, every leader needs to be led every whatever field you're in, even if you're a, uh, a lawyer, as an example. Okay, I still had people who poured into me, and even if I was part of the senior leadership staff of the firm, which I was, and had access and could dictate all this type of thing, I still, for the sake of my profession, found ways to sit under somebody who knew more than I did. Well, I believe the same is true in ministry, even though you're the lead pastor in a situation, even pastors need to be pastored. And so you have to find ways to, uh, for lack of a better word, connect with those who've been where you're trying to go so that you can learn what it feels like to be led mm -hmm. in that way. I don't believe uh, somebody should counsel somebody who's not being counseled. And I don't think that you can pastor effectively if you're not being pastored. So uh, there's a, a pattern to this thing, and God has set it up in such a way that there's a mutual encouragement as well as accountability mm -hmm. that ought to be intentionally cultivated mm -hmm. as well as uh, sought out when there are situations where it might be lacking. No, except I'm going to remember that thing, the husband, wife, <laughs> bride of Christ. I will use that a lot. Okay. <laughs> so Thank let's uh, step into the uh, practical applications question. We're going to maybe do a little lightning round, so I'll ask a question <laughs> to one of you and give us a... You, you know, know it's not going to be a lightning No, round. I know, but you know, 
<laughs> you, we try, we try. Right? Yeah, yeah, we try. Um, so, Brian, you spoke about humbling yourself by casting your anxieties on God. Yeah. So when we're sitting somewhere, maybe lying in bed, fretting about things, <laughs> uh, what does it look like to cast my cares on God? How, how can I do that in that moment? Yeah, well, I'm a big believer in sort of starting small, you know? I think if you're anything like me, but I think a lot of people have this sort of, we immediately go from zero to 60, you know? And we kind of project like what we should be doing if we had, anyway, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's kind of like deciding to read the Bible every day. If you haven't been reading the Bible every day for say a year, or, or however long, and you're like, I'm going to fix this by reading 10 chapters a day. And I'm like, no, you're not, because you're going from zero. Why don't you just go for like a few verses a day? And I'm like, that's not enough. I'm like, it's going to be twice as much as yesterday. Right. And I'm not great at math, but doubling something is good, right? So, you know, let's not be idealistic. So one of the things, that all this is to say, I think it's really important that we and I, I try to make this point, is that we don't try to measure out what is an anxiety. You know, an anxiety just means sort of a, it can be any number of things, because Peter yeah. says cast your anxiety, but any number of things can be, an, it could be yeah. something that's troubling you, it could be a temptation, it could be a yeah. trial, it can be a, it, something you're going through, it can be that person you can't get out of your mind that you wish you could. Um, that we don't sort of try to measure what really counts on the scale of importance. Is this important enough for me to bring it to God, or do I just need to kind of fix this one like a man, and like mm. wait till I'm like overwhelmed, you know? Because mm. uh, if we're just always waiting, one of the things, I mean, it's delusional, right, for us to feel like, well, this is so small, I mean, I got this one. Uh, now, so that's what I, that's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you now, we don't want to get into this habit of like every time something that is barely troublesome to us crosses our mind, we're like, we have to stop everything, mm. right? But that we get used to we get used to living the way we teach people all the time, and that is, what do we have that we didn't receive, right? Yeah. And if we didn't receive it, why do we boast as if we didn't receive it? Mm -hmm. Same sort of thing. Yeah. So that we, it really is this idea of casting your anxieties, and because he cares for you, yeah. it is really just, and I think we, we, have to, we have to be able to do it in the small things, mm -hmm. or we're going to be useless doing it in the big, huge things. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. I don't know if that helps. That's yeah, right. no, that's good. So, Dr. Copeland, how do you put into practice um, the composing and quieting your soul from Psalm 131? This is a great question. So I'm glad you got this question. <laughs> <laughs> so personally, for me, let me talk about me and then uh, expand it out beyond me. For me, what that involves is journaling because my mind what I've found out is if I let it keep rattling in my mind, it'll keep on rattling in my mind. Mm -hmm. if I, because I might pray about something. There's something that is causing me anxiety, and I pray about it, but then it's still there, and I pray about it some more, and it just keeps a cycle, whereas if I just write it out, I've got it out, because I'm not going to keep writing the same thing, even though I might keep thinking the same thing. So once I get it out, it's sort of out. As a matter of fact, if you listen to the podcast, that's even when I'm getting ready to preach and I'm trying to study. And, you know, if, if 
for those of you who preach, have you ever been trying to study and then all of a sudden you start remembering everything that you have to do? Well, I get a big sheet of blocker, uh, what do you call it, butcher block paper. I have a great big desk. And at the corner, I'm, I'm studying over here, but at the corner, whenever something comes to mind, well, you need to call this one, you should have did this, I just put it over here. I don't think about it anymore because I parked it over here and then I just keep on studying. So for me, it's this idea of uh, writing my prayers because that helps me. For other people, I would suggest you have to know the landscape of your own soul. The Bible says, take heed unto yourself and into the doctrine, continue in them both. By doing so, you'll save yourself and those who hear you. You got to know how you're built and know what, A, either spiritual discipline might most help you, might be the discipline of silence or solitude, might be fasting, might be, you know, whatever. And then B, I think is useful to, I don't know that you can beat memorizing and meditating scripture on that pressure point that you're most likely to exhibit anxiety about so that the word itself will start doing some work in you and the discipline of even trying to memorize it will help you and then C, learning how to in worship praise God for that attribute that answers whatever it is that you're most likely to be anxious about so if I'm you know, anxious about my provision or how am I going to make it? As I search the scriptures and see that he's El Shaddai or he's, you know, Mm -hmm. um, the Lord who provides or whatever, when I worship, I start praising him for that. And that starts to change my orientation in my mind. And then all of a sudden it starts bringing the temperature down. Mm -hmm. So worship, um, meditating and memorizing the scripture Mm -hmm. and journaling, I think are are helpful as examples. Those are not the only ones, but those are examples of things that can help get your soul quiet. Thank you, sir. Um, We've heard, I think, a lot this weekend of examples where being patient with the Lord's timing, um, maybe from a human perspective, worked out. (laughs) Um, You know, with the result we would where maybe, you know, you or someone was hoping for, and there's this opportunity to look back with thankfulness, you know. But that's not always what happens. Right. Right? So how would you speak to those situations where we get to maybe the end of the road or, you know, there's an answer to the prayer, but it's not the answer we wanted, right? Maybe... Um, especially in like long-term illness or, um, you know, suffering all the way to the end, those kind of things. So I'll hit a first look at it. Yeah, please. (coughs) So a couple of things. One is that the Bible is replete with examples of people. Well, let's just start with Hebrews 11, that all of these did not get what was promised to them. They died without receiving that which they had faith to receive. Why? Because God had something better in mind. It's how that, uh, that chapter ends, that they would not be made complete without us. Or I'm, I'm paraphrasing it right now. But the idea is that you're not alone. There are biblical characters 
who had faith in God but did not receive in this lifetime exactly what they were trusting God for, but they were looking forward to something bigger and greater. So we have to accommodate the fact that if God says no, it's because he, if God says no or wait or my grace is sufficient, it's because he has something better in mind than what we're praying for. And that it is possible to live a faithful life and not be able to receive, when I say a faithful life, I'm not talking about your, your righteousness is what is uh, uh, ensuring somehow or another that your prayers are being answered. What I mean by that is a faith-filled life that you've really been depending on God for something and don't see it. Well, the truth of the matter is if we're praying, in my opinion, if we're praying right, there ought to be a lot of things we're praying for that we can't possibly see in our lifetime because they're bigger than us. Uh. You know, people started building cathedrals knowing that they weren't going to see the final product, but they kept building on their part anyway because it was for the glory of God and something bigger than them themselves. And so at some point, we have to come to grips with the fact that I'm going to trust him even if I can't see the end of this matter. And if that means I'm going to die trusting, it's because he had something better in mind. And that seems to be something that the Bible speaks more frequently about than what we give it credit for. Uh, the great thing about going after Ed is you don't really have anything to add. <laughs> I will, I bet I will say this little bit of practical thing, and that is we do want to be careful, right? Because the way we hear, when we hear stories about, like, like earlier I was talking this story about Scott, or I could give you a story about how when I first, the first week I went to Southern Seminary, if, it, if I had known ahead of time that it would be like the first two weeks when I got there, which was different than what I was told would be, I would never have gone. Mm. In fact, the only reason I didn't leave is because my wife and I literally didn't have, we had n not enough money to move. We were tanked, right? Broke. Um, and so, you know, we'll get into it. But see, that's me reflecting back way, like, that's, that's a long time ago. But if I tell that story in such a way, it sounds like, oh, well, it all worked out for you. But, you know, in the moment, it, it didn't. Right. Yeah. And it didn't really get a lot. It just got more tolerable, but it didn't, you know, so when I look back. So I can tell that story in such a way that might sound to people like, oh, well, everything works out for that guy. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, it, but it's like retrospective. And even when I look back on it, I'm like, it's not as though I still understand why every single one of those things had to happen the way it did. Right. Right? So, you know, that's just a, a little thing. Sometimes when we hear stories about these things that God has done, um, sometimes we might take that as like, oh, well, all of a sudden everything became clear to that person, you know? And it's also not the case that when all those events worked out for my good, that I was also, all of a sudden like the most happy and content and faithful person that's ever walked the face of the earth, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it, it's, if it's, it's always, there's always going to be this challenge of living in the present, right? So what do we think about faith, right? Uh, faith is banking on God's perfect track record in the past that guarantees his promise of the future so that we can live by faith in the present, right? And no matter what thing is going on, big or small, that's going to be the challenge every day. Yeah. So then if that's always going to be a struggle, right, the struggle for humility, maybe as you both look back on your lives, how has that struggle changed or shifted throughout the years, maybe as you enter different phases of life, right, from single to married or those kind of things? 
it that's a good way to say it. It shifts, it mm -hmm. morphs. You never master, in my opinion. I have not <laughs> mastered anything. I've just learned, uh, by God's grace, I have great friends, great Christian friends, and so they speak into me and we're journeying sort of together. But the challenge still is the challenge, and it's a daily, moment-by-moment -moment thing to walk by faith and mm -hmm. not by sight. Now, it, it changes just like raising children change. So my children, my youngest <laughs> one is 21 now, uh, but they're still my children. It's not that they're, they don't need daddy anymore. It's just they need me in a different way than they did, you know, when they were in elementary school. Um, and fathers who have adult children understand what I'm saying here, that it, daddy still needs to be present. It's just present in a different way. And the same is true in terms of faith and sort of processing my past and thinking through, you know, how can I be faithful right now? The, the challenge is still there. It just morphs because there are different challenges that come with different phases of life. So now I'm faced with the challenge of aging parents in my own frailty mm. when that wasn't a challenge, say, 20 years ago. Uh, but it's a challenge now. This is, some people say, well, you're not that old. Well, I'm the oldest I've ever been. So <laughs> this is old for me. So old age, I mean, that's a challenge uh, type of thing. And so you got to more, you got to adjust with every season of life to see what does really, depending fully on God, look like in this season. Yeah, that's a great answer. I can remember, um, when I was, I mentioned this at one of my talks. When I was doing a pastoral internship, I was preaching through First Thessalonians, preaching very poorly through First Thessalonians, and I was preaching to. I mean, seriously, the 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 audience was a quite an elderly audience, but on Wednesday evenings, and uh, and I made some stupid comment, right? Which I I don't even want to. I'm just going to say it out loud. I have nothing to lose. I said, now I understand for a lot of you, this isn't going to be a problem like keeping your body in purity, right? And implying like, you know, you kind of passed your sell-by date on these things. And I was like, now I understand that it's not really a problem for a lot of you anymore. And I try to make some illustration. And they sort of chuckled. And after I was over, this, this old guy, old friend of my dad, I knew him from forever. He came up and he's like, son, and he was like poking in the chest. He said, I understand what you're saying, but here's what you don't understand. The problem you're talking about, you're only dealing with the superficial part. He said, the problem that you're talking about comes from in here. And he said, I'm just going to tell you right now, the older you get, just because some things don't work anymore, doesn't mean that where the problem lies has stopped. Mm. And, he said that, and he said, that makes it a whole new ball game. Mm. And I thought, yeah, message received. Right? It didn't mean much to me then, but um, I just will always remember that. As, as I thought it was a good illustration of like, hey, it's not like this problem goes away. It just takes a different, you're in a different time of life, and it takes on sort of a new, like it, you cut off one, you know, you, you cut off part of it, and it grows back. Right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know. So I think we've spoken a lot about... Um, leading, right, husbands, mm. 
uh, pastors, you know, that kind of thing. What advice do you give maybe to someone here who's, who's not in a position of leadership or maybe as a leader they're seeking to counsel those not in leadership um, as we look to walk forward together in humility, right? How, how can someone who's not a leader help cultivate that a community of, of Christ-like humility? Well, since we're all one body, mm. it's a, you know, the, what's this guy's name? Uh, <clears throat> Trellis in the Vine. Uh, Tony Payne is working on something right now where basically he's analyzed all the one another's in the New Testament. And most of them do not, uh, most of them are not leadership specific. Mm. That most of the one another's in the Bible, in the New Testament are just congregational. How we're supposed to, you know, stimulate and provoke, forbear and all these types of things one another. So even in this humility, piece, your position or your title yeah. has nothing, in, in one sense, has little to do with the responsibility that you have to the rest of the body to walk together in Christian humility and love and all the things that we've been talking about here today. From the leadership position, it might uh, play out slightly differently, but it's every Christian's responsibility, and therefore, um, I think the question was, what, what does it look like, or how would, what would we advise people to say? I would advise even leaders who are trying to talk to those who are not leading, or to those who don't have, per se, a leadership position, to always focus on the fact that as one body in Christ, we're members one of another, and though each of us doesn't have the same gift or same function, we still belong to each other, and we have a re mutual responsibility to each other in this space. That's good. No, not, not, not fundamentally. I mean, other than to remember, like, that, yeah, I, we are put here for one another. Each of you should think of the other as better than yourself, and that's not, like, selective, right? Um, and so, if you think about it, that's sort of like this full-time job, if you will, mm. that we have this opportunity to do this. Now, I do, I would want to say this. I mean, I spend a lot of time uh, with people at the stage where they're asking lots of questions. We do also want to be careful that we don't become so intentional that we can barely have a conversation with another believer without sort of trying to dig into like every detail, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because sometimes the way we would disciple and lead and help is honestly just by getting along with somebody and being their friend. Yeah. That without maybe having to always probe yeah. and like you're like God's person on the spot to like probe into this person's like life and you're not gonna leave this room until you've done some good, right? That's, a, that's an actual resolution from a particular person I won't mention from ages ago. I'm like, wow, dude, I'm not going to invite that guy to my parties um, <laughs> because he's way too determined to do something here. That I probably shouldn't say it. I've already said it, so whether I should or not. Well, gentlemen, any last words before we close out the weekend? Yeah. I just I want to say, like, you know what? I, I have the kind of life, I have this sort of job where I can kind of justify being alone a lot 
and being up here this weekend, and I've, I've also, I've had a little bit of a, a break, a sabbatical break. Being up here has reminded me how not just like icing on the cake, but how vitally important it is for my own Christian life and spiritual walk with God to be around other brothers and to hear the word preached so powerfully. You know, I know this might sound like it is fellowship in the gospel. I get it. But I think sometimes I treat things like this, like fellowship is like that's icing on the cake. But I mean, cake without icing is still cake, right? Um, but it's right. It's not just icing on the cake. It is. We have to, I think, get a hold of this biblical concept that God uses his own appointed divine means to bring about his divine ends, including our relationships with one another. It's not like God's doing his work in your life and he's got other people in your life too and they're just there for either fun or games or like to annoy you or whatever. Um, but we are instruments in God's divine providence for the shaping and forming and ultimately sanctifying and glorifying of one another. He's not doing this to any of us apart from the others. And that's just right. been, brother, I want to thank you particularly, but not just you, everybody I've talked to. That's meant, a, that's meant so much to me personally the past couple of days. I say amen to that. And I want to thank uh, God for each one of, of you and for the, as, as I said, the side conversations, the conversations at lunch or as we're passing along the way, mm. it's very interesting that when we ever sit down and talk, uh, People used to talk about six degrees of separation. It's no more than two if you can talk long enough. That you yeah. you see the connections, or you you find out, and all these types of things, and you see that okay, we we're not just one body, sort of in a theoretic, sort of ethereal way. We're really connected to each other, and maybe as. Uh, maybe we're not as divided as we are disconnected in that mm. if we can sit down long enough in settings like this and fellowship around the word we can actually uh, not only feel the unity that is ours but learn how to protect that unity Amen. thank you gentlemen yeah i i hope that this weekend you have all felt through through this fellowship that Christ's love for us is not theoretical, ethereal thing. He has concretely loved us this weekend through our fellowship and time together. Um, and I'm thankful to both of you for coming out. Can we give a round of applause? Thanks for these gentlemen. All right, you guys. Can